Hello, and it's a beautiful Tuesday fall morning here. So thanks so much for joining me uh, for another edition of Podcast Live with Green Team Academy Podcast. And today's topic is story time. It's very excited to be with you today. I've been uh, getting a bunch of stuff ready for my book and it will be available on Amazon shortly as a print book. So a few people have been asking, I just want to get the paperback version. So that will be happening shortly. So I've been reading it a lot uh, to myself <laughs> and there's so many great stories in there um, and so many cool things that I thought I would just give you the experience of story time so you can just sit back and relax uh, this morning or whenever you're listening to this. Grab a cup of coffee, grab your teddy bear. I want to picture yourself as if you're sitting on the floor in the library uh, listening to story time. And I'm just going to read a little bit of the book uh, to you this morning. And um, yeah. Enjoy. The other thing that I'm doing is I'm getting ready to do the record the audio book. So this also helps me kind of get in that mode. I got my microphone all fixed and ready and um, we're ready to go. All right. So let me get things set up here in the correct layout so I can do this. Okay. All right. So here we go. So this is Climate Action Challenge, a proven plan for launching your eco initiative in 90 days. And I'm starting with the note from the author. This book is about climate action and so much more. The coronavirus pandemic hit in March 2020, just as I was finishing the first draft of this book. Within weeks, billions of people around the world were on lockdown ordered to stay home to minimize the spread of a new and deadly virus. At first, people asked, when will we get back to normal? But it didn't take more than a few weeks to realize this was different. We would never go back to that previous normal. A friend in Australia had told me the same a few months earlier. Historic wildfires had wiped out forests, killed a billion animals, and kept people indoors for months. After the fires stopped, she said, we can't go back to how it was. We don't want to. That normal was the problem. In May, when George Floyd, yet another black man, was unjustly killed at the hands of police in Minneapolis, millions of people rose up and took to the streets. People rose up and said, enough already. Policies that had been deemed impossible to change for decades were revamped within weeks. School districts broke their contracts with police departments. Cities banned chokeholds. Teams finally ditched their offensive mascots. Frank discussions. <clears throat> okay, sorry guys, I just lost my place as he's trying to move things around here. Frank discussions of white supremacy and systemic oppression shined a light on the roots of the problems. The protests were not limited to the details of one murder. The uprisings called for a self-analysis of a country that was founded on and is propagating the legacy of white supremacy and racial violence. 
Throughout the summer of 2020, the Western U.S. broke one record after the next for high temperatures and wildfires. A record 10% of Oregon's population was under evacuation orders, scrambling to find somewhere safe to go, somewhere to breathe easier. The events of 2020 laid bare that the very fabric of society is woven of the threads of injustice, showing just how far we have yet to go. The virus, air pollution, our fragile atmosphere, and racial violence are all pointing to the same thing. The tenuous quality of breath asks for reverence in our relationships with each other and the world that holds us in her embrace. 2020 marks the beginning of a new era. If the old normal was the problem, what will the new normal be? Will we, as in the wake, okay, what just happened here? Just lost my place again. <laughs> oh goodness, here we go. Will we, as in the wake of the 1918 pandemic, allow these crises to amplify the inequities of the status quo? Will we call it good enough when communities of color endure more sickness, <clears throat> more pollution, more incarceration, and more violence? Is it okay for the most <clears throat> affluent among us to cause the most pollution, weaken our fragile atmosphere, and turn a blind eye as less affluent nations and communities suffer? Will we settle for a society that values some lives less than others, or will we figure out how to create a more just, verdant, and harmonious world? In this historic moment, we are presented with a choice. We can go along blindly with our conventional but ineffective and uncaring ways, or we can turn to indigenous wisdom and to nature herself to become apprentices and faithful stewards of our only home. We can stop waiting for someone else to fix everything for us. We can unleash our creativity, our love, and our brilliance. We can step up and become the leaders that we've been waiting for all along. What say you, my friend? Shall we? You're in the right place, Anna. I should have known that Anna would reach out to me. In the boatloads of online trainings I've done, there's one question that seems to get to people. I often say that I was a nature girl and ask if there are other nature kids in the group. The ones who pipe up immediately usually reach out to me directly later. During the training, Anna had written in the chat, me, I'm a nature girl. I always played in the creek near our house. My brother and I would swing from a tree into the river. We made our mom crazy coming home muddy and wet with crawdads and frogs we wanted to keep as pets. I work for the, I work for the storm stormwater department in my town, Anna told me when we hopped on the phone together. I used to work as a civil engineer for a construction company, but I was appalled at how lax the safety was on site. Oh no, I replied. I quit after a few years. I just couldn't handle what was being done to the rivers, said Anna. She told me how if things aren't done properly during the construction process, topsoil is disturbed and gets washed away into the rivers. In addition, other construction debris also gets into the rivers. All this hurts the land, clogs the river, and kills the animal and plant life. 
That's why she got a job as an inspector in the stormwater department. She was determined to stick out for nature in any way she could. But even as an inspector now, I'm heartbroken, Anna said. She told me how the culture of the stormwater department was intermingled with the construction companies, with several key people going back and forth between inspector positions and construction companies. It feels like a buddy-buddy system, said Anna. I'll report things, but then sometimes my reports aren't even filed. I drive the long way home alongside the river, letting the river know that I'm sorry that I'm and that I'm doing everything I can. Anna told me when she heard my story and found out about the system that I developed, she felt an immense wave of relief. I've read all the IPCC reports and I keep up with what's going on with pollution, health, and species going extinct, and my heart just breaks. I was losing hope. I've been doing everything I can think of, but it's not enough. So when I joined your training and heard your story, I finally started to feel better. I realized that I'd been missing something that was there right in front of me all along. For the first time in a long time, I feel optimistic. I've got direction and hope for moving forward. I can do this. Darwin. I want to find a way to mitigate climate change. It's getting hotter every year where I live in Zambia. I want to plant 10,000 trees, but I don't know where to start. Darwin Mawele found me online when I was doing a webinar on how to go from passion to action. I also want to help families and schools start gardens so they have a way to feed themselves nutritious food. During the lockdown for the pandemic, many families are going hungry, and I think this could help. Darwin had the idea that he could make a difference but wasn't sure where to begin. He attended the first action plan retreat I ever offered in May 2020. After signing up for the retreat, Darwin began working through the steps outlined in this book. We quickly found dozens of potential partners and sponsors, and within two weeks, Darwin applied for and was approved to start Earth Guardian Zambia. That move helped him become part of an established organization that supports youth crews in over 60 countries. As we exchanged emails, we were both doing a happy dance across the world together. Darwin's project idea quickly began taking root, and this is just the beginning of his story. Lara. Not everyone who wants to make a difference identifies as a nature kid. Lara said that she was the kid who was always inside at gymnastics practice when the other kids were outside playing. She didn't grow up camping or playing in the mountains or at the beach. She envied that, but didn't feel like she had a choice. But that longing is still there. Now, as an adult coaching other kids, Lara told me she's watched every episode of Blue Planet and Planet Earth. She can't get enough of it. And at their gym, they're big on making sure the kids use reusable waters rather than disposable plastics. Still, she feels like she should be doing more. She's just not sure what. You. Does Anna's story hit home? Or may we, maybe Darwin's or Lara's? What's your story? From a young age, every one of us senses this deep connection to nature. And at some point, the realization comes that something is wrong. 
the realization that though we thought our government or someone should be taking charge, it's just not happening. There's a longing to feel connected and to be part of the solution, to somehow honor the very web of life that supports us. Try as we might, it seems incredibly hard to be of true service in the way that we yearn for. Most people who have come to me have tried so many things to stand up for nature and with nature and to make a difference. Is this you too? Do you read the reports coming out saying that say we have only a decade to turn things around? And even though you're super busy with work and family, you still want to figure out a way to make things better? Do you want to be a part of the solution, but feel like you're actually just part of the problem? Have you taken part in climate marches and felt the exhilaration of coming together and demanding a future that works for all? Then afterwards you felt defeated, wondering if it's all just an empty show? Have you signed up with large environmental organizations, but then felt inundated with requests for donations and signing petitions, not sure if you're really making an impact? Have you found yourself on large committees working on projects that seem to go nowhere? Or maybe you've tried starting your own projects, but couldn't seem to get much interest or ran into one obstacle after the next. Do you feel you could do more in your community, but you don't know where to start? Do you bring your own bag when you go shopping? Do you try to keep up with the myriad of recycling rules, but feel you're still not doing it right? And even if you did manage to do that all perfectly, you know that recycling alone is not enough to protect the planet. If that's you, take a few deep breaths and little, let a little smile come to your face. Believe me when I tell you that the fact that you haven't been able to make a tremendous impact yet is not your fault. You're exactly where you're meant to be, and I'm so glad we found each other. Welcome, my friend. You're in the right place. I'm going to show you how to move away from frustration and step into exciting results within 90 days. Wouldn't that be a welcome change? We're going to do that together. But hold tight for a minute. Before we dive into that, I want to tell you my story. My story and my promise to you. Chapter two. Growing up in a big family, whenever we got bored or antsy, my mom's favorite refrain was, go outside and play. <laughs> I came along as the seventh of eight kids. To this day, I can't imagine how my parents did it all, raising all of us on my dad's salary, but shooing us outdoors was one key strategy that worked. I grew up in the city in Denver, Colorado, but I was enveloped and at ease in nature in our neighborhood. We played chase, running barefoot on the grass. My older brothers dug hideouts in the dirt in the corner of the yard. My sister and I made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and climbed up to have lunch in the apple tree. On weekends, my parents took us up to the mountains. We ran and hid amongst the aspen and pine trees we splashed around in the river and watched the hummingbirds do their mating flights. 
In that big family with so much going on, I felt kind of invisible or like a bit of a burden, but outdoors, I felt at home. It's not something I ever tried to talk about or even reason out. I knew it because I felt it. I always thought of myself as just a kid, but now I can see that from an early age, I was a nature kid. I wonder, aren't we all? My story, finite. By age 10, I started, quote, working, unquote, for my dad. It was a splendid way to earn a dollar and do something that seemed kind of cool with my daddy-o. I was born in 1960, so this was way before com personal computers or smartphones. He would hand me two pages, one blank piece of logarithmic graph paper and another with a list of numbers. My job was to draw a dot on the graph for each data point. I was plotting oil and gas production history. Once the data ran out, the next step was to grab a logarithmic curve. Each curve had a different slope and shape. I'd find the one that fit the data best, then draw it out to zero. That was how we projected how much oil or gas was remaining in that well. By about the fifth one, I said, wait, dad. So every one of these goes to zero sooner or later? Yes, exactly, he said. But our cars and our homes are all using this, so what happens next, I asked. I've been bringing this up at work. I've been telling them that we need to figure out something else because eventually all the oil and gas will be gone. Oh, okay, I replied. I went back to finishing that graph so I get my dollar, but I couldn't do any more that day. I had an uneasy feeling. That's how I learned the meaning of finite before I ever knew the word. This was long before concerns of climate change were mainstream, but pollution was definitely a thing. It was also at age 10 that I wrote my first piece of writing that was published. It was a poem called The Brown Cloud after the polluted air visible in Denver. But the 1970s also sparked a fresh wave of environmentalism. After millions of people got together for teach-ins, marches, and festivals, the U.S. government under Republican President Nixon started the Environmental Protection Agency and passed the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter came to Colorado to commemorate the opening of the Solar Energy Research Institute. It seemed like the adults were getting the message and doing the right things. Elegant design. When I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder in 1978, I told them I wanted to study solar energy. They informed me that that wasn't an option. Instead, I was advised to enroll in engineering, and I did. The absence of a solar program should have been my first clue that the adults didn't have things as under control as I had hoped. I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering in May 1982 and got married two weeks later. I got a job in the field of building energy efficiency, and I was excited to be on track using my skills to make a difference. I was enamored with passive solar design the kind I'd studied in college and thought I might build someday. 
But the most impressive example was the, the cliff dwellings designed by indigenous people of southwestern Colorado at Mesa Verde, somewhere around the late 1190s. Large natural rock outcroppings protruded out to the south, keeping the living spaces cool all summer. Yet when the sun dropped its path in the winter, the rays flooded in, heating up the thick interior walls to radiate heat back out all night. But at our engineering firm, our clients only gave lip service to passive solar. The U.S. Department of Defense, cities, and home builders asked us to optimize design, but only within a small range. Changing the orientation of the building to what would be optimal for energy efficiency was usually out of the question. That was decided based on other factors. I wondered, why would builders choose to literally align with nature nearly a thousand years ago, but now it was suddenly completely out of the question? Niwot. After having our first daughter, we moved to Niwot, a town of about 3,000 people. We were just 10 or 20 minutes down the road between two larger cities, Boulder and Longmont. This was 1987, and though we'd had recycling in Denver and Boulder, in Niwot, there was no recycling. I usually traveled to work by bus, so it was even more annoying because it meant I had to make an extra trip driving to recycle. That made no sense at all. In 1988, we added our second daughter to the family, but the town still didn't add recycling. I started making phone calls, and I felt like I was calling everyone I could think of. But really, I just kept calling the county and the recycling nonprofit EcoCycle. Little by little, there was more interest. After, after 100 or so phone calls over a couple of years, Niwot got a recycling center. Woohoo! It's there and it's in use today. I received an award as an eco champion. Exciting, right? We moved away in 2004. But you know what? After spending 17 years in Niwot, the recycling center was there, but I had built nothing beyond it. I didn't think to start a group that would meet and work on environmental projects while I was there and after I left, and that's kind of sad. Just being super passionate about the environment and dedicating my life to it didn't mean that I was making much of a difference. Fort Collins. In 2004, we left Niwot to move to Fort Collins. I got a job with the city and was working as part of the team designing programs to increase energy efficiency. A key part of our work was participating in the annual Sustainable Living Fair. Our department hosted a booth complete with a bicycle-powered lighting efficiency experiment. As an engineer, I'd never given much thought to festivals or imagined that they could make a, much of a difference in environmental work. Egotistically, I thought it was the engineers who were doing the real work of protecting the planet. People came from near and far to participate in the multi-day festival. Kids with faces painted like butterflies were running on the grass. Local musicians played under a tent. The vendors were not only selling, but also teaching about native plants, 
solar, gardening, and more. Another tent hosted all weekend, hosted workshops all weekend with neighbors and experts sharing strategies for living in harmony with the earth. Throughout the days of the festival, I started to experience how this sustainable community was something different, something powerful. That event left an impression on me, even though I didn't recognize that it had until much later. Doubt. I moved a few more times. I continued working as an engineer in what had promised to be my dream career, but doubt was starting to creep in. I was finding that time and time again, the expected results for our projects didn't materialize. It started when I worked for a big controls company and the controls weren't always able to do what was sold. I was the one installing the systems, working with customers and in the spot of having try, to try to appease them as they expressed their disappointment and frustration. And in another position, we were encouraging cities, counties, and school districts to take on multi-million dollar energy efficiency projects. Our company was responsible for reviewing the measurement and verification reports. Frequently, the report showed that the expected savings just weren't there. There were lots of reasons, maybe excuses, for why this happened in each case, but the result was it left me doubting my career path. I knew that my purpose was to be a positive force for protecting and caring for the planet. But was I? Walkabout. I was ready for a change. In 2007, recently divorced and with my kids both off to college, I went to Ghana to learn drumming and dancing for a month. Every morning, we'd start by singing to the drummers, calling them to drum for us. We'd then dance for an hour and take drumming lessons for another hour. In the afternoons, we'd do one more hour of lessons. It was a fascinating experiment in each person doing their best and adding their own style while working towards group cohesion. One night, I went out with two of my friends to a local jazz place. There was no one else on the dance floor. One of my friends said, hey, the dance floor is empty. You go out and dance and we'll video you. <laughs> Holding up his phone, he encouraged me and waved me on. Wait, what? I said, why? Exasperated, he said, because you have to express yourself. When I got back from Ghana, I had a hard time fitting back into my engineering role. My shell had been busted wide open and there was no going back. And Lord knows I tried. I got certified to teach English. And in 2010, I headed to South Korea. Within three years, I worked as an English teacher in three different locations, teaching students from age six to 60. In the last school with no curriculum on hand, I had free range to teach whatever I want. I taught sports 